Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the Sports Business Podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. That was the crowd at the Parc Olympique Lyonnais after the US women's national team beat Holland to win the 2019 FIFA World Cup. The fourth time they've won the trophy to go along with four Olympic gold medals and eight CONCACAF gold cups. And this week, the US National Federation, the USSF, and the US women's national team settled a six-year fight over equal pay. The players will receive $24 million, and the USSF has promised to equalise pay between men's and women's national teams for all competitions, including the FIFA World Cup. So why is this happening now? Well, politics is playing a big part. Next week, the USSF elects its next president, whose tenure will include the 2026 FIFA World Cup in the US, Canada and Mexico. And the two candidates are former President Carlos Cordero and today's guest, the acting president, Cindy Parlo-Cohn, who took over two years ago when Cordero was forced to resign after his legal team filed controversial court documents that implied male footballers were superior to women and that they should get more money. Let's listen to some of the commentary in the US from around that time. Just to recap on what the US uh, soccer lawyers uh, said in court as part of this gender discrimination lawsuit on Monday. The women do not perform equal work requiring equal skill and effort to the men because the overall soccer playing ability required to compete at the senior men's level is materially influenced by the level of certain physical attributes such as speed and strength. An appalling misstep from the U.S. soccer lawyers. Carlos Cordero, U.S. soccer president, enduring a firestorm and, in fact, resigning just late last night, ending just over two years in charge. Of course, the U.S. was selected to host the 2026 World Cup with Canada and Mexico. He hired Greg Berhalter on the men's side. He oversaw the women winning the World Cup in 2019, but also the start of the lawsuit back in March of 2019. And now this... We're joined by uh, uh, Julie Foudy and Hercules Gomez to discuss this. Uh, uh, Jules, let's start with you, because you were on the show just 24 hours ago saying you didn't think Carlos Cordero could survive this. And indeed, just a few hours later, he did resign. Your, your reaction? There was absolutely no path forward for him. Mm. Who would think this is a great scenario for them, a great approach, a great argument, a legal argument? And I, I, I'll tell you who else is going to come down with a lot of heat. Uh, is Lydia Walkie, who's their general counsel, who was in charge of this argument, uh, a woman. How do you not see, I don't care if you're blue in the face as a lawyer arguing that this is a great legal argument, how do you not see the repercussions of this with sponsors, with fans, with public sentiment? Because in the end, even if you do win a trial, then you've lost the war, though, haven't you? Mm. Carlos Cordero said he hadn't ever even reviewed these legal documents, these particular legal arguments uh, that uh, his lawyers were, were going to make. The arrogance and ignorance here is outstanding. It's mind-blowing. They only really took action when there was sponsorship money that they were afraid was going to be taken away, when Volkswagen, when you know Budweiser, when all these companies started speaking up. That's when they took action. Now, listen, Carlos Cordero didn't do this by himself. And let me read this right here. USSF bylaw 411. The board shall have all governance, supervisory, and administrative authority of the Federation. He has one of 15 votes. This goes much more deeper than Carlos Cordero. Now, they're being sued by the U.S. women, but they're also being sued by Relevant Sports, Hope Solo, the NASL, and their own foundation. The stupidity that runs across U.S. soccer (laughs) these days, and for what has been probably the last four or five years, I repeat, mind-blowing. 
We're two years on from Cordero's resignation, and this week we had the announcement on equal pay and the settlement of the women's team's claims that ends a six-year battle with their own federation. This is Megan Rapino talking this week about the announcement. So, Megan, what does this mean to you? Oh, it's a good day, Robin. It's a good day. I'm just so proud, to be honest. I'm so proud of all the hard work that all of us did to get us here. Obviously, the players on the team and the players this lawsuit represent and our extended team that has helped us. But it's a really amazing day. I think we're going to look back on this day and say this is the moment that, you know, U.S. soccer changed for the better. I mean, obviously, we can't go back and undo the injustices that we face, but the only justice coming out of this is that we know that something like this is never going to happen again, and we can move forward in making soccer the best sport that we possibly can in this country and setting up the next generation so much better than we ever had it. So it's a, it's a great day. We're all super proud um, and just really excited to have arrived here after a, a very long <laughs> and yes. arduous road. Given this context, you'd think Cindy Parlo Cohn would be a dead cert for president. But the word is that the election is going to be close. So this week's news feels very strategic. After six years, the pay dispute is suddenly settled days before the election. Cohn is a former U.S. international player and a World Cup winner herself and has Megan Rapinoe, Alex Morgan and every former woman player selling her campaign across social and mainstream media under the banner of Forward Not Back. But elections are often not about candidates, they're about voters. And read the threads that followed the news of this week's equal pay settlement and you'll meet the usual culture warriors doing their thing. And Cordero's campaign is focusing on his success in helping land the 2026 World Cup and his plans to use the event as a launching point for the U.S. soccer's business in years to come. He says he he wants to be transparent and inclusive in decision-making, especially when it comes to U.S. soccer's grassroots membership, which is a key constituency in the election, and that he will use his global soccer and FIFA connections to bring a Women's World Cup to the U.S. So there's a great deal hanging on next week's vote. If you're interested in sports business analysis and comment, follow Unofficial Partner on Twitter and join thousands of busy sports execs who receive the newsletter every Thursday. Sign up by unofficialpartner.com. Here's my conversation with Cindy Parlo Cohn. Before we get into the minutiae of federations and the various bits of the election itself, what's the sense of optimism in American soccer and in football? Because from here, this is a sports business podcast, and we talk about the market for American soccer, both men's and women's, a lot. It comes up a lot. So whether that's the valuations of MLS teams or things like the level of interest around the U.S. national women's team, whether it's Angel City's introduction into the scheme of things. We've had various people from across the spectrum on the podcast. But just give us a sense of the level of optimism in the the game itself. Yeah, I think it's huge levels of optimism. I mean, the demand for soccer content and rights and sponsorship has never been greater in the U.S. than it is right now with our women's national team continues to be the gold standard and winning everything. And then the excitement around our men's national team as they're gearing up to qualify for the men's world cup in 22, you know, it's a lot to build on and then coupled with the exponential growth of the sport leading up to and past the 2026 
World Cup. And then you mentioned our pro leagues, right? MLS is growing and doing great, as is the NWSL and USL and NISA. So I think it's a really great time in soccer. And then we have this tentpole event of World Cup 26 coming here. And then we'll bid for 27 or 31 uh, World Cup for the women. And then we have the 28 Olympics in there, which soccer is a huge part of as well. So I think there's a lot of excitement and demand for soccer content demand from sponsors right now. And it's just, it's just a really exciting time to be involved in the sport. That's what it says. Forward, not back. Right. I think, you know, I was handed the Federation at a re probably one of the most challenging times the Federation has ever faced, you know, at least half the country was angry with us. Sponsors were threatening to leave. I had no CEO, no chief commercial officer. I had to replace our legal team. And so there were a lot of challenges when I was handed the baton and I feel like I have turned the ship around, plugged a bunch of holes, put a bunch of fires out, repaired relationships and moved the Federation in a really positive direction. We still have a lot of work to do, no question about it. We still have a lot of things um, hanging over our head that we need to resolve, but I feel like we're in a much better place. I have great relationships with the sponsors now, working with the players. They know me and they know that I'm a person of my word and that I have the utmost integrity. So there's that trust there. Not that we're always gonna agree with each other, but there's a level of trust there now, which, which wasn't there before. And I've navigated bringing our commercial rights back in house which quite honestly is a game changer for U.S. soccer and what it can do not only on the field and off the field, but also for our members. So I think there's a lot of things that I was thrown in and turned the ship around. And, you know, now I would like to look more broadly and really grow this game, not only here at home, but but globally and, and working with our partners and our athletes and our members to do that. And one of the great pathways to do that is World Cup 26, which is tentpole event coming up. And so this, is, this has been my focus in, in growing the game and how do we leverage World Cup 26 to help our members to increase their participation. You've got Coke saying we're extremely disappointed with the unacceptable and offensive comments made by US, sorry, US soccer. Visa, likewise, Deloitte, Budweiser, Volkswagen, all coming out with statements that were very critical of the, of the leadership. And that's unusual because quite often they don't do that. Well, I think this was an unusual time, right? I mean, I was angry when I read those words, right? As a former player, as a woman reading those words, I don't know that anything could be printed that would be much more offensive than what I read coming out of US soccer. So I get their frustration and their anger. The women's US soccer team is a more valuable property than the men's US soccer team as a marketing entity. Is that something you would agree with? It just depends. You know, it goes back and forth. It depends on the year, who's got a major competition, and it depends on the sponsor. It's just cyclical and different people, different sponsors have different groups that they're marketing to. So it just, it totally depends in a large part on what part of the four-year cycle we're in, as well as where the sponsor interests lie. When you sell the rights to the men's and the women's game, do you sell them together or do, they, do you sort of decouple? Yeah, they're sold together. And, and why do you do that? Just mostly because of the number of games that we have. When we're not a pro league, right? And so we have a limited number of games. So um, separating them out would be really challenging and maybe possibly 
having our men's national team and women's national team end up on different networks. So makes it more challenging for people to find us and know where we are. We're really excited about where our media rights are heading right now. Uh, we should have an announcement here soon, I'm hoping. But I think it's important for us to have a network that is home of U.S. soccer. I think the other thing that I want to talk about on the media is I think everyone is focused on our two senior national teams, our men's and our women's team. But we need to remember that we have a lot of extended national teams as well as youth national teams, which I think creates great programming. And we wanted to partner with a network that saw the value in those as well. And from a sponsorship point of view, because you've seen with FIFA and UEFA, they are separating out men's and women's games because they see a real market place. And, and people like Invisa have gone early to, to go specifically for women's soccer rights. Is that something that's in the plan, do you think? Do you think there is enough there? What you're saying is it's, it's not about the story of the thing. It's about the inventory. There's just not enough inventory on the women's side to sell that. We could go that route, you know, and then with a sponsorship, you know, we just did a sponsorship with Degree that was just for our para men's and women's teams. So we're open to doing separate sponsorships for our extended national teams. We have not done that for our senior teams yet. The senior teams, typically the sponsors come in and sponsor both. Some may be leaning more towards the men and wanting to do more on the men's side, and some lean more towards the women and want to do more on the women's side. So it's, it's just dependent on the sponsor coming in and where they want to activate. And who is the, the main media partner in the domestic market currently? Well, we're in renegotiations right now. So what we should have in a, a, an announcement soon. And without preempting that, I'm just wondering, because you've, you, in the States, they quite often have much longer terms in terms of the media rights, you know, in terms of the number of years. Over here, it's normally a, a sort of three-year deal. And we've seen the NFL sign up for, for long periods of time. And I'm wondering what, from your perspective, do you see a longer period as advantageous? Yeah, I, th I think a, a longer period, uh, a longer contract so that we can really develop relationships, develop content with our media partner and also have our sponsors activate around our media partners partner. So I think that that is key. And so we are looking to have a little bit longer contract than what you mentioned. I suppose the risk there, just thinking that through, the risk is that the value of those rights will go up in the interim over the period of that contract. And you're in a very dynamic marketplace. Women's football is, as we said, it's at an exciting stage. So it's quite difficult, I guess, to prejudge what the value is going to be in three to five years time. Right. You never know. And you, you try to do all the market research that you can and all the predictions that you can. But for me, like dollars are important, but more, more, even more important to me is making sure that we have a partner that it's in line with what we think is important and aligns with our values and what we, in our vision going forward. And so with the partner that we'll be announcing soon, I think we have great alignment. We've had a number of conversations and it's been really exciting to to have these conversations with them and 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 to hear their vision and it aligning with ours just stepping back from that sort of the, the detail of your job today and going back to your playing career what's the difference between when you were playing you had a, a great playing career and some really stratospheric highs for you know you were one of the pioneers of women's u.s soccer what's the difference between your career and the stars of today i think 
game is much better now. They're much more talented, much more skillful, much more tactical than they were in my time. The, the game as a whole has advanced and I'm just super proud of where the women's game has gone, uh, especially in the U.S. But I do think we have a responsibility as leaders to making make sure that the women's game is rising up in the rest of the world. So being a leader and helping to grow the game globally, the men's game continues to grow and continues to improve and bring in more revenues. And I think we'll continue to see that on the men's side. On the women's side, I think it's at a point and it's poised for exponentially growing. We started to see it here. We started to see it in parts of Europe. And hopefully we'll continue to see that in the rest of the world. You know, I, I think travel is much better now <laughs> than it was in my day. You know, the level of staffing that they have and the pay is very different than it was in my day. But I'm pretty excited about where the game has gone since my playing days. If you go back into the sort of cliches and myths of the past in American soccer, it was a white middle class game. It was the whole soccer mum story, all of that. And it feels like that's very different now. How soccer in particular suits or fits with what America is becoming? And I, I guess there is a story about the ethnic breakdown of America, particularly in a city America. But I guess your job is to try and fit the formal game or the, the federation with what's actually happening on the, on the streets in inner city America. Yeah, I mean, for me, I don't care where the kids play just as long as they're playing, you know, I, I am the person I am today and the leader that I am today because of my experience in sport and not only organized sport, but the unorganized sport that I played. But I, this is something that's near and dear to my heart. My day job when I'm not being president is I'm a, actually a youth soccer coach. And so I, I see the lack of diversity on the fields every weekend. And so I, I'm I can, working with a consultant group that's doing a deep dive in soccer in the U.S., in trying to nail down what are the barriers for minorities to to playing soccer? Why aren't they choosing soccer? What are those barriers? And then what can we do? And the we as collective, both U.S. soccer and we as a soccer community, do to remove those barriers? And so I'm really excited to see those results and to see the recommendations that come out because you you mentioned exactly like part of the issue we see and the lack of diversity that we see is lack of access to our game, which it, sh it shouldn't be that way. You go travel the rest of the world and there's kids playing everywhere, whether it's in the streets, on a dirt field or on an organized 11-a-side pitch. Um, and then how, how can we all work together to make sure that these kids have access, whether they haven't had access due to a disability or socioeconomic or infrastructure, what have you. So trying to make sure that we increase access for all to grow this. I mean, it's always the case, I guess, that a federation does so much, but actually there's a game that's taking place beyond your reach. Because I'm assuming they are playing. Yeah, it's I, not like they're not playing football. It's just that you're they're not coming into your remit under your umbrella. Yeah, I think it, uh, the latest statistics I saw was like 55% under U.S. soccer in one of their members and 45% unaffiliated with U.S. soccer. So there is a lot of soccer going on in the U.S. and a lot of it is unaffiliated. And so how do we 
make those unaffiliated leagues feel welcome? How do we provide support to them? They don't necessarily need to all come under our umbrella, but how can we help them make and, and create a good environment for them and make them feel welcome if they do want to come under our umbrella? What are the barriers what's, and what's stopping them? I think there's a lot of barriers and the study will elaborate on this. Obviously, cost is one. Transportation is a big one and trying to find ways that we can bring the game to them instead of them having to come to the game. I think image is a, is a big problem, right? There's a, their image of soccer in the U.S. is that it's a rich white kid's game. So changing that image and changing that reality, quite frankly, and making sure that our game is more diverse at every level. You look at our senior national teams, and I think it's the most diverse our senior national teams have ever been, but that's not necessarily reflected at every level of the game throughout the U.S. Mm. Let's talk about 2026, because it's the first expanded tournament. It's going to be a lot more teams, 48 teams, a lot of pressure on the cities. FIFA is in the, it's still not decided where the games are going to be played, I understand. Is that right? Yeah. So my team and I have been engaged with FIFA, with all the potential host cities in the selection. I'm on the steering committee along with the president of FIFA, Gianni Infantino, the vice president of FIFA and the president of CONCACAF and Victor, and then the president of Canada member association, Mexican member association, and then me. So we're on the steering committee, which will help guide the selections. The final choice does come to FIFA, but in terms of hopefully this will be done in quarter two. So coming up quickly. And then the next phase after that, a major priority for the Federation is make sure that no time is wasted. Once the decisions are announced to begin working with the host cities and all of our members so that the benefits of hosting and growing the game are directly aligned. And obviously we won't just work with the host cities, the bid process, you know, and traveling around the country, it was really cool to see. We saw an unprecedented level of support from across the country and we need to capitalize on this and the opportunities to capitalize on World Cup 26 will extend to all 50 states in our nation with a comprehensive like road to 26 framework uh, program that's focused on legacy, promotion, fandom and participation with a clear focus that everyone who loves our game is going to benefit from it. Because let's face it, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and it's going to take innovative leadership to lead the way here. You have the road to 26, you have the actual event of 26 and then the legacy portion of it. And so to make sure that we really focus on creating programs with the cities throughout our country to leave tangible legacy projects. Each city is a constituency and made up of the could be the mayor's office or it could be the local NFL franchise in some cases, or it could be just the city governance. This is taking a long time, this process. How are they? How are those constituencies? Are they holding together? Are there, is there a, is, there's a sense that we need to know the answer to this? Yeah, I think there's a frustration level on every side of it, right? The host cities, for sure, it, this process has been dried out, dragged out with COVID and the challenges that COVID have presented. And I think from a U.S. soccer perspective as well, we want to know what the host cities are as well and move forward. And so we can, because we're excited to move to the next phase of the World Cup and the road to 26. So I think... And then on FIFA side, I mean, I, I think that they wish that they could have moved faster as well. So I think there's a lot of frustration that is 
likely chalked up to some of COVID and, and then some changes that everyone has gone through. And we're in a different world now than we were in March of 2020. But things are moving forward. Things are really positive. It was really cool to travel around the country and talk to all the different host cities and to interact with them and to really see the excitement, not just of a major event, but of this event coming to their city and how soccer crazed they are, which is which was so fun to see and just got me really excited um, about the future of this event. For our, they've done away with the local organising committee as an idea and they're, they're centralising the running of the event, which is a bold move. And this is the first time that that's going to be happening, as I understand. Is that right? This is the first time it's going to be happening with the Men's World Cup. The first World Cup that they're actually doing this with is the Women's World Cup in 23. So it is a significant change. And we're looking to FIFA for some framework on what this is going to look like. And I I think they're figuring it out as well on the way. But in the meantime, U.S. soccer, we're pretty bullish about this event and how huge it can be and that we need to make sure that all of our members, all of our constituencies in every every state needs to have benefit needs to have the great benefit of this major event coming. You know, we saw in 94 what it did to our sport and then we saw it again in 99, but I feel like we have the potential here with 26 and then followed closely with 28 and then a women's world cup in 27 or 31, we have potential to see exponentially more growth in our game. And when I say growth, I'm not just talking about participation. I'm talking about fandom access to fields, infrastructure, like it, we're going to see an explosion. There's more games, more people, more teams, more infrastructure, more challenges. And there's a, there's a significant environmental impact that's going to be had by expanding the tournament. And I'm wondering if the way in which the the whole thing can be organized, is there a way of mitigating that? When you're looking at at major events, they're under pressure from an environmental perspective, quite rightly, but they're also looking to do bigger and bigger tournaments. So I'm trying to work out how that's going to play. Yeah, I mean, that was a big part of our bid. I, I think one of the big advantages that we have in the US is that we already have all the infrastructure. Right. So many World Cups, they're working to build the infrastructure and put it into place where we already have the infrastructure. There's been minor adjustments, but environmental uh, sustainability and looking at that, that has been a huge part of, of our bid. So if you go back and look at our bid, I can send it to you if you don't have it. But there's a whole part written about all the things that we're looking at there to make this event as green as possible. Is clustering the cities part of that? Yeah, ultimately, that's our hope, right? So that we can, for this exact reason, cut down on the environmental impact. But ultimately, it'll be up to FIFA how they organize that. Okay. Let's talk about the MLS then. Because, say, there's a lot of interest in the MLS because just, I guess, from just a narrowly commercial perspective, some of the franchise valuations seem very high. And I'm wondering what the reason for that is. Well, I think you're seeing what we talked about earlier in the show, right? The demand for soccer, it just keeps growing. And it has never been greater than this moment right now. And you're seeing it with our national teams. You're seeing it in the MLS. You're seeing it in the USL. You're seeing it in the NWSL, as well as in NISA. So I think 
I think this is part of the greater landscape um, of where soccer is in the U.S. and it is growing and the demand for it, whether it be content or playing for it, it, it has never been greater. Wow.